Hello, my name is Tim Schwartz and welcome to the Life After Blindness Spotlight. Join me as I interview someone about their journey with a life after blindness. This week on the Life After Blindness Spotlight, I am joined by a man of many talents, you could say. He is an entrepreneur, he is an author, blogger, podcaster, and former Carney. Yes, I did say former Carney, and we will get into that, I'm sure. So this week, I am joined by the blind blogger himself, Max Ivy. Max, welcome to Life After Blindness. Well, thanks, Tim. I'm happy to be here, and uh, it's good to, good to get to spend some time with you again. Absolutely. We had a preliminary discussion uh, prior to this and found that we have a lot of different things in common, not just our blindness, but so many other interests and in things. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure we're going to have a lot of fun uh, over time talking about uh, different things, wrestling and, and so many other different things that yeah. we uh, that we have in common. Yeah. Yeah. And I did, I did put, I, and one of the things we talked about was that in order to bring back the passion to my podcast, I needed to create an ideal guest list, which I did. And while he's number 12 on there, Cody Rhodes is on there so that I can talk to him about his story of his entrepreneurial journey from, you know, turning his back on a big corporation family and starting out on his own, which, you know, as you agreed with me, is like the ideal guest for the What's Your Excuse show. Exactly. And, and we'll definitely talk about that because you are the host of What's Your Excuse, the podcast. And uh, of course, you have the blindblogger.net where you get into a whole lot of things about yourself personally and uh, different things that are happening in your life. But then, as I mentioned, you are also an entrepreneur, you're an author. So, so many different things that we can talk about. But as I always do, I want to go back and kind of set the stage a little bit and uh, talk with you know talk with you about where you've come from. I know that you do have retinitis pigmentosa. And as many people might know, that is hereditary, but it doesn't always pop up uh, at birth necessarily. So talk with me about your childhood and, and your upbringing and uh, when RP came into your life. I was about four or five years old and I grew up in a family that was in the carnival business. So it was a big family, just like families in farming and ranching. Children mean free labor. So uh, my, my mom had five brothers and sisters. My dad on his side of the family had five brothers and sisters, although they weren't in the carnival business. So, you know, at about four or five, they started noticing that I was running into things more and falling down more than any of the, any of my other cousins or my brother. And so they decided to have me checked out and they eventually found out that I did have a vision problem and it progressed gradually at first. Um, I didn't have to have any really any special help other than uh you know the natural things that parents and teachers will look out for you once they know you have something like that but uh for elementary school up until the time I entered junior high school it really I really didn't notice a lot of uh, of effects from it I did have to start the process of going from reading regular textbooks to having to read having to wear you know, have heavier and thicker glasses and eventually having to read large print. I had a big drop off when I started junior high school, which is fairly common for men with RP that they will have a, a large drop off in their vision when they go through puberty. I like to joke with people that about the time I would have wanted to look at girls, I couldn't see them no more. <laughs> well, I could see them in two dimensions, but where's the fun in that? You know, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and at this time, that's when I started using a closed circuit television where, you know, you project your, your print up onto a screen. Uh, eventually, they would start with me learning to read Braille and, of course, making the transition to using audio books and then Braille books. Although I've always been a much better 
reader with audio than with Braille, although I'm getting getting better at it now that I'm in my older age and I'm going back to it. Um, at that same time, my family would sometimes let me help set up and take down rides, but their main thing, they, they would let me work in the food trailer or operate one of the games because they felt like two, they, they had two ideas. One, if I was inside a trailer or one of the, one of the game booths, I could not get into any trouble. And, uh, and two, they felt like, uh, the best way to keep any kid out of trouble was to put them to work. So I bagged <laughs> Fair popcorn. I guess. Yes. I bagged popcorn and put butter on popcorn and put syrup on snow cones. And, um, did, you know, the menial, you know, dirty stuff that, you know, if you're lucky at the end of the week, you might get a quarter or 50 cents for. So, mm. But it kept me from walking around the midway, and and when you have less vision and you you're you're on the midway, especially during crowded times, it only takes one uh, unintended collision to start a bad situation for Team Ivy or Team Wagner, you know. So they were looking out for me, but also for themselves. And it, may, it you know, it's one of the things that makes much more sense now than it did at the time. But at the time, I thought I was getting to do something cool. I was getting to help out in the in the in the wagon, you know? So eventually I would start working a game called a duck pond, which is where you, the, the players that pick up ducks and you look at the numbers on the bottom and that tells what prize they win. Yep. Started out with regular size numbers and then the numbers had to get bigger. And then eventually we had to put that metallic, uh, rail labeling tape on them. Uh, about the same time in school, I went from doing my homework and I was always really good at math, not pretty good at English, but much better at math. And I had to go from doing my assignments in pencil to doing them in, in pen and eventually doing them with like uh, marks a lot. Um, my algebra assignments, you know, were like an inch thick by the time I would turn them in because that's how big the, the images had to be drawn and, and how many times they had to be drawn so I could, you know, figure out the congruent and the adjacent and all them stupid angles to solve the problem. So that was, and I tell you, I, I got to where I hated the smell of Marks a lot, but it was about the only way I could, <laughs> about the only way we could do the homework at the time, you know, and that's, that's the thing about it. I think that's one of the first things you learn as a blind person. If you're around good people is you learn that, uh, it really doesn't matter how you do it or what your solution looks like. All that matters is does it accomplish the set goal? You know, does it allow you to meet your objective, which in my, when my case was, to do good enough in school that I could graduate and maybe go to college and stay out of trouble with my parents because like a lot of parents, uh, doing well in school was a big thing. So. Absolutely. And to that point, Max, I'm sure that, you know, growing up in the carnival business and also, you know, losing your vision and knowing you, you were going to, cause as you said, RP is hereditary. So I'm sure you had family members who had had it prior to you. So it was just a, you know, the, the shot in the dark, no pun intended, uh, as to whether you would get it or not. So, so at four years old, when it started to kind of show up, and then as you said, up through, uh, you know, middle schools, it was getting worse. How was that transition or how was, because it, you, the way you describe it makes it sound like, well, I, I was able to use larger print or braille or, or different stickers or markers. And you, on the face of it, sound like you adapted really, really well. Was that always the case? I would say um, probably about 90% of the time. Um, you know, it, 
and and this is this is where growing up in a family that that operates a business is helpful. When you spend your time around people who know that they're never going to have all the resources, equipment, or money that they would want to, but they somehow have to get to next week. Those aren't the kind of people who are very sympathetic to you being <laughs> depressed, upset, disappointed. There, uh, yeah. You know, I grew up with a grandmother who, if you told her you were bored, you you better you better get ready because you was going to do something you didn't want to do. Uh, the first time I ever told her I was bored, I got to wrap stinky, smelly, dirty change that they had been collecting all year Ugh. from the from the food wagon and the, oh and the ticket booths. That was not fun. No, I bet it was not fun, but uh, but it was a lesson learned, I guess. Oh yeah, but you know these were like I said, these were these are not the kind of people that you that are are, are going to set set too well with you know with you being feeling sorry for yourself. I went to a really good school district, and that's one of the things we're all learning about visual impairment is schools are not equal in this country. The the more money and the the better uh, operated the school district you live in with a disability is the determines what your experience is going to be and what kind of resources you're going to have. I lived in a, in a very good school, school district in Northwest Houston. And so we had a Braille instructor. We had an orientation and mobility instructor. We, we had really qualified people in our special education program. It wasn't just people that were, were there because they were tired of regular classes or weren't qualified or, you know, they were, they were well-trained and people who really, you know, again, were not going to put up with, any half measures, it was going to be, well, you're, you're here to learn, you're here to graduate. I'm here to help you figure out how, you know, those kind of people. So very blessed between my family, my upbringing, the, the effect of being in a small business and then having a good school. And, you know, you talk about making the adjustment when I was in junior high school and they would take me out of class to, uh, to teach me orientation and mobility skills. I thought I was getting away with something, man. I'm like, yeah, I get to spend half the day. They're still in class. I'm riding a bus from, you know, uh, what used to be North Line Mall to downtown and back. You know, I'm I'm hanging out with my instructor, drinking an orange, orange Julius at the end of the day. You know, I'm like, uh, so, you know, a couple of days a week, I was, I was enjoying myself, even though, yeah, I know I'm learning important skills and all. And the first time I crossed this, the street next to a four lane street was, was scary as all heck, but it was, it was kind of fun. It was kind of an adventure and it was part the instructors and, and partly just like I say, when you're that age, if you're not in school, you win. Well, yeah, exactly. Any, any age, I think when you're, when you're not in school, you feel like you've won. Although I have to be honest with you, I'm still stuck back on the orange Julius. I haven't had <laughs> one of those in years, but I love orange Julius. My gosh. Yeah. That used to be the best part of the day when you, after you've walked, after you've walked blocks and you've crossed streets and you've been up and down curves and, you know, they throw a double curb in at you somewhere or a turnstile and, you know, like, oh, crud, what do I do now? And then you finally get through. And, you know, at that point in your day, anything is great, but something about an orange Julius, I agree with you. And it's, it's strange what you remember when you start having conversations. I hadn't thought about that in probably 30 years. <laughs> well, that's what we do here. Um, try to spark that, that memory for the conversation, but no, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that, uh, having the, you know, good school environment, you know, you've got a family that do the nature of the business, like you were saying, 
is there pushing you and and not taking any excuses? And in some ways people could say, well, that's not always good. But in your case, that worked out to be very, you know, very good for you and uh, having the good schooling and having the orientation and mobility skills, you know, involved there. That all is a good recipe for success, I would think. And, you know, being able to you know, feel like you're not necessarily being talked down to, you're not necessarily being treated differently. At the same time, you were because you were having to get different training or special training in Braille and orientation and, and things like that. Yeah. And there's there's uh, and there's one story I would like to share with you because I think it, it really makes the point of this from my parents' side of the equation. Um, sure. My dad was one of those people. He was always telling me, Max, there's nothing you can't do. There's nothing you should be afraid of doing. And, you know, I don't want to hear you say you can't, but there were also times when without me knowing he was doing things to, to try to keep me safe without t- telling me, no, it wasn't in him to tell me, no, you can't do something, but it wasn't in him to, to not be a parent either. So my brother, Michael, he's one of these guys, he's got a couple of extra genes in his DNA because he can, he can take uh, electronics or motors or engines apart and put them back together and make them talk to him sometimes. You know, he's just skilled that way. He's also a very talented airbrush artist and painter. So oh, wow. um, he, he um, somehow acquired a, a dirt bike and a moped. And they weren't running when he got them, but they were within a little shortly thereafter. And I felt like the moped went so slow, which for people who don't know, a moped's like a bicycle with a motor on it. It will sound, it sounds huge, it sounds fast, but it might go five miles an hour. Yeah, they kind of barely just putter along. Yeah. Yes, yes, they do. In reality, <laughs> they sound much faster than they are, but I was happy with it. And I'd ride it around our yard. We had a, a big yard with uh, the various families in the Wagner family living on one big plot of land together. So I'm riding around, I'm happy with it. And I never noticed this at the time, but the, the moped and the dirt bike always seemed to have mechanical problems. And I found out after my dad passed away that he used to go in the barn every night and, and, and break the motorbike and the dirt bike on purpose. Oh, my gosh. He would fix them so they wouldn't run. And then, you know, my brother would fix them so they would run. And it was kind of like a back and forth kind of thing. We didn't find out until after he died that, well, he couldn't tell me not to ride the moped no matter how safe it might have seemed. But he didn't feel good letting me ride it either. So he would just go and, you know, disconnect a piece or maybe maybe loosen something, you know, something that would take my brother long enough to fix that by the time he was through fixing it, there wouldn't be much, if any, riding time. And that's oh my gosh. That's the approach he took, you know. Well, and inadvertently he was uh allowing your brother's time to refine his skills on fixing it. So <laughs> I guess uh, there was that as well, but definitely didn't stop you either. No, no, no. My my dad, one of the things he's taught me, and one of the things he taught me, the many things I learned from him over the years, and, and this is something I, I don't share often because it doesn't sound good, but it certainly works sometimes. He used to say, Max, there's some people in this world that you cannot argue with. You cannot persuade. You cannot convince. He said, when that happens, lie to them. <laughs> Well, whatever works, I guess. And so basically what he was, what he what in this particular situation is like, I can't tell him not to ride the bike, but that doesn't mean I can't come up with another solution. You know, he's, uh, he, he was not somebody who was really big on confrontation. So that worked for him. 
we were talking about family and RP being hereditary and, and you losing vision at such a young age. Was there anyone that you knew around that time uh, growing up that, that was also blind or visually impaired? No. And we have at the time up until recently, we had not had anybody in my family that had had retinitis pigmentosa or macular degeneration or uh, even glaucoma that wasn't caused by uh, by alcohol or some some other you know abuse to the body. In the last few years, though, my aunt and my mom have both had macular de- degeneration, but those are generally referred to as age-related macular degeneration. So sure, we but they're really you know they're and and it's not really unique to me that there's no history in my family because you know, for a long time, you know, I'm 53 years old. So I would have been diagnosed somewhere around say 70 or 71. And if you go back to the generation before 70, a lot of people may have had it, but they may have uh, diagnosed it as something else. You know, they, they may have not even gone to an eye doctor to find out what was causing the vision loss. When I got into uh, like the end of junior high, beginning of high school, uh, I joined up with uh, troop 962, which was a troop of uh, troop of Boy Scouts here in the Houston area. It was sponsored by the United Way and the Bell Telephone Pioneers, and it was all boys of varying ages with different levels of vision loss. And I participated in that group for all through high school. When I wasn't uh, working on the weekends for the carnival, I was uh, out in the woods with the in in tents and on you know and, and sleeping bags with the scouts and. I eventually earned the, earned the rank of Eagle Scout, and I'm one of the few uh, legally blind people in the country who's received that award, who achieved it. And of course, nowadays, when a blind person is in scouting, they are participating in, in a troop, uh, regular troops, wherever they happen to live. And I know I don't know exactly when it went out of existence, but our our troop is no longer no longer in existence. But we had. You know, uh, our scoutmaster was uh, was James Duncan, and he was one of the one of the first, if not the first, to uh, to be instructed to to get what they call the wood badge and be instructed on how to be a scoutmaster uh, after after his vision loss. And then we had a uh, sighted assistant scoutmaster, Dave Crandall, who was very very helpful. But being involved in the scouts, uh, the summer camps, the other boys and the and the other adults uh the parents and the and the uh the scout masters and the people from bell telephone pioneers uh, a lot of great memories from scoutings and just basically added on to the lessons i had been learning from uh blindness my family the carnival business etc so a couple things that i'm curious about there then as far as being in, in boy scouts and you know a troop like that where they're they're obviously very inclusive because you know you said there's various different levels of uh of blindness with the, all the boys that were in that that particular group what if anything was different about being a boy scout not only at that time but in in a pack where you were all you know, visually impaired in some way. Were there different types of, you know, assistive uh, devices used or different uh, types of tech, you know, I don't want to say technology, but what, what types of things were used, if any, that, that would have made it different? Okay. Well, um, there was always at least one uh, Braille watch and at least one Braille compass. Instead of using a axe or a hatchet for cutting wood, we used a a regular saw and some very sharp printing shears. 
when we went out, we were lucky because we had the support of the telephone pioneers. So instead of sleeping in sleeping bags on the ground, we slept in, we slept on cots, which was very nice. Uh, that wasn't a thing for, for blindness. It was just a lucky thing because we had a good sponsor, you know, that yeah, absolutely. To, to raise money and provide us with good equipment. Um, we, the tents were the same as they would have been for everybody else. Um, but eventually, you know, from, with practice, you learn not only how to set them up, but also how to take them down and fold them back up properly so they go back into the same size and shape as they were when you took them out of the, out of the truck or out of the trailer. The scouting manual was uh, was in large print, braille, and on tape. And some of the merit badge books were available uh, in braille, but not all of them. So a lot of times it meant having to find somebody to read them to you. I think, of course, you know, now with the internet, I think all of that stuff is online and available on oh, yeah. a phone or a tablet to make it easier for you to, to read and prepare to go through the steps that you'll have to in order to achieve a particular uh, merit badge or skill award. One thing that was different for me, but it wasn't because of the blindness. It was just because of the, of, of the, the, the person. It was a, it was a circumstance thing more than anything else. Um, as part of, as part of my process to get the uh, merit badge for swimming and for, uh, I think it was a swimming or life saving, one or the other. Um, I had decided to do the mile swim, which is, uh, and I had been practicing for my mile swim in a, a pool, whereas the, the one boy from our troop who had done it a few years earlier, um, he practiced, uh, most of the time, he practiced in a lake near his house. So when he swam at, at summer camp, he swam in one of the lakes at, at Camp Strake, which is also no longer out there because it got to the point where the real estate was worth too much money, so the scouts sold it and moved farther away from the city for their summer camp. But so he, when he swam his, he swam his in the lake, and there, there were people having to watch for alligators while he was swimming. When I swam mine, I swam mine in the pool. I got gotcha. you. It's just two different blind people with different circumstances. And a mile, a mile in water is a long way. That's a real long way, but no matter how you do it, it's whatever's easiest and best for that individual. And, and I like that you're talking about, you know, using Braille and large print and, and all those things that, you know, you would think, you know, late seventies, early eighties, you know, may not have been widely available, but thankfully for your troop there, that, that was available and accessible and, you know, provided an experience for you that. I'm sure is something that's, you know, lasted a long time. Even people, even, you know, young boys with, with vision have a hard time necessarily getting to Eagle Scout. So just to be able to achieve that, whether you're sighted or not blind or not achieving the level of Eagle Scout is a big deal. And so to have that availability, uh, I'm sure, you know, was quite gratifying. Was that one of your first experiences with other kids or other people that were blind? Oh yeah. Uh, with other, other kids who were blind. Yeah. That was, would have been my first experience. And outside of that four-year period, the only other time was um, shortly after I graduated, I went to Winter Park, Colorado with some of the people from the, that were sponsored by the Delta Gamma Foundation. But, you know, that's something that has kind of been interesting throughout my schooling days. And then since then, other than for short periods of time, I really haven't been exposed to a lot of other blind people. This summer, I went and participated in the Level Up Conference put on by Envisions in Wichita, Kansas, at uh, Kansas State University. And I was up there to teach things like uh, tying a tie and shaving and things like that for the young men. 
And that was probably the first time I'd been around a, a blind person, much less a whole bunch of blind people in, in three years going back to a, well, four years going back to a NFB conference in October of 2015. So it's not something I do all the time. And as a blogger or podcaster, it's not something I purposely do. I, I basically share my story with everybody and attract who I will attract. And here lately, it seems like I'm uh, receiving interest and connecting with more blind people than I have in the previous four years of being a blind blogger or the previous 12 years of being online in general. Well, and I'm sure that that's uh, bound to happen, you know, considering your situation and, and having RP and getting your, your voice out there and your name out there and people reading your blogs, blindness is going to come into play, uh, you know, one way or another. And I know for you, you you've, it sounds to me as though you've done well, not just with the, I don't want to say acceptance because acceptance is a tricky word and we all have different levels of acceptance, but basically saying, you know what, I'm blind, but I'm going to be in Boy Scouts. I'm going to be an Eagle Scout. I'm going to do what I can in the carnival business. I'm going to do what I can despite being blind. I'm going to still try to do these things and do the best I can. And I know that, uh, you know, we'll skip ahead a little bit, but, you know, your family being in the carnival business and, and all that, you really weren't involved in that for for much longer than that, were you? You, you got out of that after a while. Well, I, I got out of it twice. I got, I, um, I got out of it once uh, when, I, when I went to college and then when I worked for the Internal Revenue Service for about three years. And then I went back for 15 years or so. And then when my father died in 2003, we kept the show going till 2006 or seven. But then I got out of it for good and started helping people buy and sell amusement equipment. So, and, you know, something I just realized I had never thought of before, but when I joined the Scouts for the first time, it was after attending a, uh, an instruction program um, for blind people at the University of Houston. The last, the last week of the summer, they go on a camp out. Before the camp out, they bring Dan, uh, you know, Mr. Duncan down there to give a talk about his Scout troop. And, um, and I won a, a raffle that they had for a, a hat from his troop. And I took the hat home and it started a conversation with my dad. And the next thing I know, I'm going to the meetings at the uh, Boy Scouts. Um, After, uh, and a a lot of things like, a lot of things in my story start out with not necessarily with me deciding I'm going to go ahead and do something. They start out with somebody asking me, you know, Max, have you ever thought of doing that? Or would you do that? Or is there any reason why you can't do that? So in, and I like to tell people, and I've said this more than once in interviews, that one of the best things that can happen for you is to have somebody you, you know, a good friend, double dog, dare you to do something. And over the years, you know, I I got into scouting because of a hat. Um, I started my my first website basically because uh, my my brother told me, you know, Max, if you're really going to do this, if you're going to get out of the business and start brokering equipment, you have to have a website. And so, you know, then you start the process of figuring out, well, how are we going to have a website? Um, somebody said, Max, if you have a website, you need to have a blog. So how am I going to have a blog? Eventually, I started doing I, I started doing interviews to promote my, my blog, and people started asking, well, Max, when are you going to have your own podcast? I was promoting the, the website again, and a woman said, Max, I'd like to have you be part of a summit. Have you ever thought about writing a book? So a lot of times, that's there's, there's a lot of that in my story. And... 
you know, of course I could say no, I could say I can't do that or I'm not interested, whatever, but I have usually said yes. And more often than not to my benefit. Yeah, definitely sounds like it's been to your benefit, no matter whether it's been working with the family in the carnival business, or like you said, later on, you went to, you know, selling the equipment, selling, you know, things for the Midway. Uh, matter of fact, I think you still have a website for that now, uh, in, in, in conjunction with, uh, also having, you know, the blindblogger.net. So doing that and then, you know, starting a, a website and a podcast, and then even, you know, being an author, those transitions, was there any, I know you said you, you rarely ever said no. You always said yes, and it almost has always worked out. Was there any hesitation? Was there any time that you're, you, know, you said to yourself, boy, I don't know that I can do this, or because of my blindness, is this going to be something I can't do? What, what, was the, what was the transition like to each of those different things that you've experienced? Right. Well, when I started the website, in the beginning, my brother Michael helped me start it with a very simple three or four page format. Uh, but he eventually got a very high paying job working for a, an independent ride operator on the East Coast. So I was in a position where I had to figure out a way to maintain and update the website. And I didn't have the money to hire somebody. I didn't have the, uh, the skills to do it myself yet at that point. And uh, if I had had the money, I don't think I would have trusted somebody to do it for me. You know, it was a lot of Websites at that in 2007, getting a website done was a big deal. It cost a lot of money, and there were a lot of people out there doing it who weren't doing it well, but they were still getting paid for it. So I probably wouldn't have had that trust. I, you know, started learning how to how to code HTML so I could maintain my website because I felt like I had to. Um, so I didn't really ever feel any fear there, other than I sometimes felt the fear that I was never going to to really understand how to use the code or in, in the beginning, I was afraid sometimes that people were going to see my efforts and be so appalled by the, the lack of quality of my work that they wouldn't want to talk to me. Mm. <laughs> uh, sometimes I, I, in the early days, I was afraid of telling uh, potential clients that I was blind until after they had asked me to help sell their stuff. And then I would have to say, you know, nothing really affects you in any way. But just so you know, I am blind. I, I do have to get help. Uh, managing the media that you're going to send me so I can post your listing and try to sell your equipment. So those are some minor things. I have a good friend named Cassandra. He's like, Max, I've never really seen you scared or nervous. So would you please call me the next time you think it's going to happen? Cause I'd like to see it. And you know, there's, there's, I'm not going to say that I've never been, I'm, I'm not gonna say I've never been nervous, but I don't think that I've ever really been scared. And then my dad used to say that, um, that most of us Ivy men, we get scared after something's over. You know, if you see one of us shaking, it's probably going to be after it's all done and, you know, good, bad, or otherwise it's, it's, you know, there's, there's really nothing left to worry about at that point. But with the first book, I actually told that woman, I said, you know, you think I can write this book in a month or six weeks? I said, I don't think it's possible. And she said, well, you know, Richard Branson's known for saying promise to deliver and then figure out a way to do it. And I'm like, well, you know, you can say it all you want to, but I've never written a book for it. Right. If this turns out badly, I'm going to put it all on you, girl. You know, this is not going to be on me, but it turned out that she was right. Although it took more like four or five months to finish the book instead of six weeks. I have done a lot of hard work to get from the point of in my life where I've gone from saying I can't do it or I've never done it or I don't know how to, I shouldn't do it, to, yeah, I could do that. I can do just about anything I, I set my mind to. 
but this doesn't fit my my purposes, my goals at this point in my life. It may fit them a year from now or two years from now, but right now, it just doesn't serve my my overall purposes. And that's that's a hard place to get to when you you know you go from being scared of every or nervous or unsure of everything, like not knowing how, to you know basically, well, why not do that? You know, why not get on a train and travel across the country to New York and back by yourself? And this is where I think my blindness is really helpful because for me, and I don't know, I might be different than you, but for me, I really have to focus in on what I'm doing. If I'm traveling, if I'm speaking, if I'm recording an interview, I have to be totally in the moment. And to me, if you're really in the moment, focused on what you're doing or on mission, as my friend Amy Starlin likes to say, there isn't a lot of room left in your brain for fear. Part of my brand is, is that the mistakes have value and people seeing our mistakes and how we deal with them and how we grow from them is one of the most important lessons I can share with people. Talking about your podcast, and I'm sure that there, there's something to be said here about this. I know that you have a passion for what you do, of course, obviously. Um, you wouldn't be here if you didn't. Your website, your podcast and everything, you're very passionate about what you do. But I know even just listening to one episode, although I've listened to many of your episodes, but I'm sure anybody listening to just one episode can get the implication that your opening theme is very important to you and for you to present. Talk to me about the choice of the river. When I start my show, uh, I usually sing for maybe about 20 or 30 seconds. I also sing at the end of my shows. It's something I do for, for two reasons. One, because I was giving a public talk last uh, two years ago now. And after the conference was over, just fooling around, I asked if I could sing. One of the other speakers who was also a speaking coach heard me. He said, Max, from now on, whenever you speak, you have to sing. And he said the same thing with your podcast. He said, especially if the music has can be tied into your story or to the theme of your show. And I said, well, that's great because the you know, the one song that I'm known for, I, I sometimes switch it up, but I usually sing Part of the River, which is a song by Garth Brooks. It came out in 92 or 93. And basically it, um, it talks about, uh, it talks about how life is a, is a river. It's a, a lot of small decisions, twists and turns in our lives that we never really know where they're going to take us. As long as we just continue to sail the boat, continue to go down the river and find out what's around the next bend. It also has a section about uh, that talks about not letting uh, things go on till tomorrow, next week, or next month, and you know, going ahead and doing something about them to now, now instead of instead of saying you'll do something about them. Uh, and then it has a nice ending where it you know talks about faith and how important that is. So it's it's just a song that spoke to me the first time I heard it. Uh, I heard I had bought the CD. I just got my first CD player. I bought the CD. Didn't expect the song. I don't think the song was even the song they were playing on the radio to promote the, the album, but it just stuck with me. And so uh, I usually will sing the first verse without the chorus. It's not only the theme of the show and, and the beginning of the show and it gets things started off, but it's also almost meditational. It's, it's you know, kind of like uh, an athlete uh, finding a way to center themselves before they walk out onto the field. 
anything that gets you into the mindset of what you're doing and brings out the passion, whatever that might be. If you're excited about an interview, that that sometimes alone can be you know enough to spark the passion. But to get into that mindset, that meditative state, like you were saying, I think that that's that's very fitting uh, for the journey that you've taken thus far, and especially you know of course going forward and going forward. Although you, you've been doing this for a while. Talking more about you know your website and, and going along that that journey down your your river. I mentioned at the top of the show that you're an entrepreneur as well. You're doing consulting work. So if you could tell tell me a bit about that. I do two things. I'll tell you about the thing I enjoy doing most, and then I'll tell you about the thing that I that I get paid for. Uh, <laughs> okay. The thing I enjoy doing most is helping other people get unstuck. Um, getting them to start taking those first small steps like I did back in 2007, uh, helping them define the goal and pick a goal that's theirs and not the goal of their friends, family, or neighbors, or people they've seen online. Uh, help them define success in terms that fit them rather than terms that, of success that fit the rest of the world. Uh, helping them figure out what steps they're gonna take, what resources they're gonna need, whose help they're going to have to ask for along the way. And then being there to hold them accountable and teach them how to hold themselves accountable until they, you know, make real progress towards whatever their goal might be. And that's one of those things I, I do it more by implication or by experience rather than straight one-on-one -on -one coaching, although I am available to coach people one-on-one -on -one in that area. But more often than not, uh, people will write to me and tell me that just by seeing my progress uh, reading one of my books or reading my blog posts or, or watching my videos that they were inspired to take some sort of an action. So that's, that's the, and that's one of those things I have, you know, I've, I've done it. Uh, I enjoy doing it, but it's not the thing most people want to hire me for. Uh, the thing most people want to hire me for is to help them get exposure for what they're already doing by connecting them with hosts of podcasts and radio shows, uh, helping them submit to a guest, submit get, guest posts or contribute to news article uh, roundup posts, um, introduce them to people who are um, involved in like book collaborations, anthologies, basically anything mostly online, but sometimes in, in person. You know, sometimes I will uh, introduce them for a speaking opportunity or for a, a panel discussion, things like that. But basically just I do the work of finding the opportunities, making the introductions, sending the emails so that the person who needs the exposure, they don't have to spend the time, energy, uh, or they don't to not only to do it, but just to learn how to do it. You know, I, they can, they can take advantage of my experience. What's that expression? Uh, it's one thing to learn from my own, ex my own mistakes, but it's a whole lot better to learn from other people's mistakes. And so, yeah, absolutely. As you know, I've made just about every mistake possible at least once, sometimes more than once. So <laughs> these, these people, they get the opportunity to learn from what I've learned as far as putting myself out there over the course of, of my journey. And, <clears throat> and the other thing is something me and you talked about before, that there are a lot of people that are doing great work. They have amazing stories. They have blogs or podcasts or they've... They've recorded a film short um, here lately. I'm starting to meet blind people who are video game uh, creators and developers, but just because they're doing really well, doesn't mean they have the confidence to go that next step and put their hand up or send out an email and go, Hey, you really should have me on your podcast to talk about my video game or my book or my album. And 
it's it's one of those things. There's nothing wrong with it. It does take, you know, it takes a whole another step to go from being confident enough in your work to put your work out in the world to charging for your work out in the world to wanting to tell other people out there, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what makes it special, and this is why you should be paying attention. That's a that's a whole other level of confidence that I have. Um, I came by it honestly through through effort because I spent 15 years booking a small carnival in the state of Texas where everybody had twice as many, if not three times as many rides as we did. And you know, the only way I was able to continue to make to to keep us booked was to ask a lot of people questions I pretty much knew the answer was going to be no to before I asked it, but having to ask it anyway, hoping they would say yes, and knowing that if they did say no, I'd just go on to the next name, the next phone number, and eventually down, you know, later on with the internet, the next email address. So I have the, I, I don't have any fear at all in people telling me no, and that's a very important uh, skill or commodity, for, especially for people who, who haven't gotten to that confidence level yet. So all of that being said, then Max, you were talking about, you know, things that you've learned that you're able to then share with other people to help them, you know, with their confidence building and help them get, you know, get over those, uh, you know, those speed bumps of things that they're trying to deal with because you, you, you've got that confidence and you've, you know, committed a few mistakes here and there in your life uh, that you've been able to learn from, uh, as you know, and the listeners know, there's a segment that we do on life after blindness where I, talk to people about things that have happened in their life because of their blindness. The segment is because of my blindness. And I like to ask people to talk about something that they've learned or an experience they've had, someone they've met, whatever it might be, something that because of your blindness may not have otherwise happened or may not have otherwise been an experience that you would have had, something you've learned from that you think is important to make sure other people hear about. Is there something that you can share with uh, me and the listeners, uh, something because of your blindness? You know, uh, you, you know me, I'm a storyteller. I have more stories than I need. Um, <laughs> answering this question with just one is going to be hard, but I'm going to, I'm going to start with a little one. And um, in 2016, I won one of the uh, prestigious Amtrak Riders in Residence Award. And I went off to New York city by myself for two weeks. Uh, while there, because of my blindness, and also because I'm a I'm a very friendly, positive person, I, I like to get my way with a with a handshake or a hug and a smile, as opposed to throwing a fit. That's just the way I am. Uh, during the course of two weeks while I was in New York, I had a cab driver try to give me his umbrella. I had another one refuse to charge me. I had another fellow pick up my breakfast tab, and this is all happening in Manhattan, New York City, USA. Uh, two Brits from the UK who had accents so thick, even I had trouble understanding them. Um, when I got stuck at Rockefeller Center and couldn't get out because you can take a cab there, but you can't take a cab away from Rockefeller Center. Two guys from England, they walk up and throw money down to a, to a pedal cab driver. And he takes me to go to, go to my, uh, my schedule to go, to go check out Wicked on Broadway that night. So those are the oh, kind wow. of things that have happened. Uh, you know, just in the space of a couple of weeks. Uh, I do think that, you know, going back to this confidence thing when it comes to pitching other people, I think that my blindness is definitely an advantage there because I just don't get embarrassed as easily, I think. I mean, um, when I was in New York, the, I, was, I was shepherded by two skate guards at Rockefeller Center's ice skating rink because it was crowded and they didn't want me 
hurting myself, hurting one of the other patrons, or one of the other patrons hurting me, or so they said. Um, one of those had to be true. But the thing is, is I fell down two or three times. The last time after I got up, I told one of the skate guards, I said, man, you should have taken my picture. He said, what do you mean? I said, you, nobody wants to see a picture of somebody laying on the ice. I said, I said, yeah, my followers will, because they know that the next picture will be me back up again. You know, so one of the things that happened to me because of, because of being blind that, um, one, I didn't know was happening, and two, after I found out it was happening, I just left it because I thought it was really cool. When I created my first website, uh, I had this section, this process of deciding on what, what colors to use. Now, I'm already almost totally blind at that point. So I'm picking the colors based on the names of the colors rather than the numbers that are assigned to colors because I feel like I got about as good a chance picking the right color by name as I do picking the right color by number. So I picked yellow for the background because back in the day, the, the prizes always looked better on yellow than they did on white. I picked blue for the text, red for the links, and orange for previously clicked links. I would later find out that the yellow was an ice cream and yellow, the blue was navy, the red was brick, and the orange was a fluorescent orange, like something you'd see on the side of a dive bar. Oh, my gosh. Um, this, this website was so bright that people have said over the years that Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder could have had an argument over it. I mean, it was, <laughs> add to that the fact that since I couldn't really edit my images, um, I basically would put the images up that people sent me, but I put them in the order that my brother said they looked their best. So sometimes I'd have two or three or four different size images on the same page together. So not being able to see the monstrosity for myself and not being able to fix it or make it better at the time I decided to do what I did and I started promoting the website I started asking people if they wanted to list their equipment with me I started selling equipment using the website and I think the fact that I really didn't have to go look at my website whenever I updated it was probably what helped me be able to do that because I think if I could have seen it for myself I'd have been Max, you need to be ashamed. <laughs> you need to take this puppy down until you can fix it. You know, I, so, I mean, I, but I do, I do kind of believe that uh, our blindness can be a big advantage to us because I think it really helps with that uh, perfectionism and even to a lesser extent with, with comparisons because I find that I'm a whole lot less embarrassed by stuff either in person or online than most people I know are. And of course, that could be, you know, spending years basically just trying to get to next week any way possible, or it could really be that over the years I've just become desensitized to embarrassment because I, you know, I often tell people, I think the Olympics, so stop trying to win them style points. Ain't nobody going to give them to you anyway. Well, Max, I know that you and I can talk about a whole variety of different things related to blindness and even not related to blindness. We've gotten a pretty good picture, a good profile of yourself, your life, things that you've gone through and experienced. But, you know, as you say, you know, in your podcast and on your website and, uh, you know, and how we kind of got together talking on Twitter, if you don't ask, they can't say yes. And I'm very glad that uh, we had the opportunity to get together and talk because we we did connect on Twitter and uh, we're able to have a conversation about different things and we're able to, uh, you know, be able to talk today and, and get an idea of what your life has been like and what you've gone through with RP and everything else. I want to thank you very much, Max, for coming on the Life After Blindness Spotlight. Of course, you have so many different things going on, so many different places that people can get information about you. So if you could take a moment and tell people where they can get more information about what you're up to. Right. Well, the, the best thing to do would be to go to the blindblogger.net. 
theblindblogger.net uh, or send me an email to just ask at theblindblogger.net. Uh, on my website, you'll find my social media links, but if you are searching on social media, I'm either Maxwell Ivy or The Blind Blogger on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. And the other thing on my blog is you'll see the most current episode of my podcast, and if you click on any of those links, and you can find the, the download or the, the link to listen to it in, in whatever podcast platform you prefer. Very good. Well, I strongly encourage everybody to check all of that out. Go check out theblindblogger.net. Look for Max on social media. You're a fun follow on uh, on Twitter, definitely. So people make sure to go check Max out there. But Max, before we go, I know we were talking earlier about the river and how important that is to you and how passionate you are about the message in that song and how you include it in your show. So I want to give you an opportunity here as we're closing and uh, wrapping this up. If you could, please go ahead and sing us out. Too many times we stand aside and let the waters slip away till what we put off to tomorrow has finally come today. So don't stand upon the shoreline and say you're satisfied. Choose to chance the rapids and dare to dance the tide. And I will sail my vessel until the river runs dry. Like a bird upon the wind, these waters are my sky. I'll never reach my destination if I never try. So I will sail my vessel until the river runs dry, till the river runs dry. Awesome. That was really great, Max. Thank you so much again for being on the show and uh, we look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks, Max. Well, thank you so much for having me and I really appreciate the opportunity and I'd love to come back anytime it works for you.